I'd like to have you turn now to Psalm 132. You can either use the uh, printed sheet from which we read a moment ago, or if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to this uh, passage, uh, feel free to do so. Psalm 132. As Wayne pointed out, this is one of the ascent psalms, literally, a song for going up, and uh, evidently was one of a number of songs that were sung by pilgrims that were making their way up to Jerusalem for the feast days. Three times, according to law, every able-bodied man and his family made uh, a pilgrimage up to Jerusalem, and there they had a time of worship and feasting together. These were times when they uh, shared visibly, outwardly, the unity that they had uh, as a nation. And apparently these songs from 120 through Psalm 134 were the songs that they sang along the way. They were the hymns that sustained them through the sometimes very arduous and difficult journey that was involved in making this pilgrimage. They were sustaining songs. I don't know if you enjoy Winnie the Pooh or not, but uh, we've been Winnie the Pooh fans for some time. And there's one particular episode in in uh, the Winnie, Winnie the Pooh story where Pooh got stuck in his hole. He ate too much honey and couldn't get out. And if you remember, he had to diet for a period of time. And uh, during the long time that he was uh, stuck in the hole and couldn't get out, uh, his friends, Tigger and Christopher and others, sang sustaining songs to him. And that's what these songs are. The songs from 120 to 134 are sustaining songs to carry us along the way. Now, we don't any longer make pilgrimage, uh, pilgrimages to Jerusalem or to any other place, for that matter. But uh, we are involved in a, in a spiritual pilgrimage. And these are songs that help us along the way. They draw us near to God. There are many times, I believe, when for one reason or another our hearts grow cold through sin or through indifference or sometimes through sustained periods of temptation and stress. Our hearts get cold and, and uh, we feel distant from the Lord. These are good psalms to read and ponder because they serve to draw us close to the Lord. For instance, the psalm that precedes the one that we're going to study this morning, Psalm 131, uh, describes a weaned child. Verse 2, I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. This is a good psalm to sing during those times when uh, you feel unsatisfied when there are longings in your heart that are not being uh, fulfilled, you feel that the Lord is taking his time about responding to you and answering your prayers. You wonder if he's faithful to his promises, and uh, you'd like for him to hurry a little bit. You're unsatisfied, and you want the Lord to, to satisfy you in some way. Well, the psalmist here, who in this case is David, says that he's like a weaned child. In other words, he's learned to control his urges. He doesn't demand satisfaction immediately. He waits for the Lord to satisfy his heart at the proper time. That's what the last verse means. O oh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Tarry for the Lord. Because delay is always a part of the process. I've thought of this psalm recently over the past few weeks as we've tried to sell this property. and I'd like to get that property sold. And my natural tendency is to start pushing and shoving and trying to get things my own way in my own time. 
But David says, no, wait for the Lord. Be like a weaned child. Don't insist on satisfaction immediately. Let God meet your needs in his own time and in his own way. And learning that truth sustains us. So uh, I hope you'll, you'll see these psalms in this way and use them as you carry out your pilgrimage. Now let's look at Psalm 132. As Wayne mentioned, the psalm is divided into two parts. The first ten lines describe David's vow to the Lord. The last ten lines, the Lord's vow to David. The psalm is concerned with David's yearning for God. And more specifically for the ark as the symbol of the presence of God in Israel. Now let me give you a bit of background to this psalm because it's difficult to understand unless we know something of, of what, uh, what was happening in David's life at the time uh, this psalm was penned or written. The ark was a symbol of the presence of God in Israel. It was a little box about the size of uh, an army footlocker, if you can remember what those look like. It was about three and a half feet long and two feet wide and two feet deep. It was made out of acacia wood and was overlaid with gold. It had a lid on the top that was made out of solid gold, and mounted on the lid were two solid gold representations of angels, cherubim, with their uh, wings outstretched over the top of, of the lid. It was on this lid that the high priest on the Day of, of Atonement sprinkled uh, the blood. Inside the ark was the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the tablets of the law that Moses received uh, at Mount uh, Sinai. Also, there was a little pot of manna and Aaron's rod that budded. The purpose of the ark was to represent for the people of God the character of God. It tells us something of, of what God is like. The ark was built at the foot of Mount Sinai. After Moses received instruction for building the tabernacle on the ark, he gathered the people together and they assembled all the parts of the, of the tabernacle, the ark being one of them. And uh, then the ark was uh, transported through the wilderness from Mount Sinai up to Kadesh Barnea, where it remained for a time while the nation of Israel wandered in the wilderness and that first generation died off. And then it was carried from Kadesh Barnea over to Transjordan, and participated in the conquest of the land of Canaan. As you know, it was carried uh, around Jericho at the head of the army and uh, apparently was involved in, uh, in several other battles, decisive battles that took place during the conquest of the land of Canaan, then was laid to rest at the city of Shiloh. Several years later, we're not sure exactly when, the Philistines overran Shiloh and they captured the ark and took it with them over into Philistia, where for about seven months it resided in different uh, Philistine cities, Ashdod and, and Gath and Ekron and other cities there in Philistia. The uh, Philistines apparently thought that they had God in a box. If they captured the ark, then they would have some control over the God of the Israelites. But uh, if you remember the story, you know that... Uh, that the ark was nothing but trouble to the Philistines. The plague broke out and they couldn't get rid of this uh, article of furniture fast enough. They put it on a cart and sent it back to Israel. 
And uh, for a time it resided in a wood, in a forest, near a city called Kiriath-Jerim, a city in the woods. For about 60 years, the ark lay in the woods and rotted away. The nation was indifferent toward it. During most of this time, Saul was the king, and his neglect of the ark is indicative of the state of his heart. Saul was a thoroughly secular man. He never had any interest in trusting the Lord or pleasing the Lord or counting upon him. He was a totally self-governed, self-centered man. The end of his years, you'll recall, were spent in madness because he, he made no room in his life for God. He had no interest in spiritual things. There were some, there were, there was a time or two when he seemed to have some desire to follow the Lord, but those were always, uh, periods in his life when he was, when he was in desperation. And as a last resort, he turned to the Lord. But by and large, he had no, no interest in spiritual things, whatever. And during his reign, the ark lay out in the weather, in the woods, and just rotted away. Saul didn't care. Had no use for the ark, nor for the Lord that the ark represented. But how different was David? I believe from the time David was a little boy, he yearned for the ark. I think that's what's meant by verse 6. We heard of it in Ephrathah. Ephrathah is another name for Bethlehem. Bethlehem was called Bethlehem Ephrathah. The word Ephrathah is a Hebrew word that means fruitful. Bethlehem, the place of fruitfulness. And I think from the time David was a small child, he longed for the ark through those years when he herded sheep for his family and uh, was virtually unknown. He knew that the ark laid out in the, in the weather, in the woods, and he longed for it. But uh, he could do nothing about it. David uh, was one of those kids that grew up tough. He had a hard time as a child. I think he, uh, he has that in mind when he says, Though mother and father have forsaken me, yet the Lord has taken me up. There's some, indica uh, some indication that David was illegitimate in his birth and was shunned by his family. You know, when Samuel came to anoint the king, Jesse, David's father, brought out all the other sons, but David was left in the field because he wasn't important. And I think David grew up in that, uh, with that sort of rejection, feeling uh, unworthy, and uh, his life was hard. But one thing David wanted above all else was the Lord to be central in his life, and his yearning for the ark was indicative of his desire to see God become Lord in his life. During the years that uh, David was in Saul's court, he yearned for the ark, but he could do nothing about it. I uh, have often believed that the songs that David wrote during that time must have reflected this yearning, and perhaps that's what made Saul so jealous. David, you know, was the court musician as well as Saul's armor bearer. And he sang for Saul to soothe him. And I think he must have sung some of the songs that appear in our, in our Psalter. 
And uh, I believe these are the things that enraged Paul, uh, Saul. Because they, they indicated the condition of David's heart and his yearning for God above all else. The attitude that set him apart from Saul. After Saul uh, died, David was king over the southern kingdom of Judah for seven and a half years. And again, he could do nothing because he was uh, he had no access to the place where the, where the ark was located. And finally, after waiting for years and years, David became king over all Israel. His first action, we're told in the book of 2 Samuel, was to conquer the city of Jerusalem. He took the Jebusite citadel there. That was the place that God had chosen above all other nations, the place where he wanted to make his name known. And, and so David, because of God's choice, conquered the city of Jerusalem. And then his section, second action was to go after the ark. He gathered the nation together. And uh, they marched the eight miles down the mountain to Kiriath-Jerim and uh, lifted the ark onto a cart, and they began the journey back to Jerusalem. A journey, as you know, that ended in tragedy because David's method of transporting the ark was contrary to the law. And his good friend Uzzah, who was a relative of the man who had cared for the ark during its part of its time in, in Kiriath-Jerim, was struck down and died, and, and David... Uh, David was dismayed. For three months, he was afraid to get the ark. But uh, after a period of time, he went down to the house of Obed-Edom, this time with all of the priests, and they transported the ark in the proper way and brought it back up to the city of Jerusalem. There's a description of, of that action in First Chronicles chapter 13. David conferred with each of his officers, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. He then said to the whole assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you and if it is the will of, our, of the Lord our God, let us send word far and wide to the rest of our brothers throughout the territories of Israel. And also to the priests and Levites who are with them in their towns and pasture lands to come and join us. Let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we neglected it during the reign of Saul. And then there follows in chapter 13 that a description of that first journey. And then in chapter 15, the successful journey from the house of Obed-Edom up to Jerusalem. And we're told in verse 29, as the ark of the covenant of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window, and when she saw King David dancing and celebrating, she despised him in her heart. She was uh, in the family of Saul. And Michal shared her Saul's feeling about the ark, and she was embarrassed by David. David was a king, and the action that he took upon bringing the ark up to Jerusalem was very undignified. He was so excited about the return of the ark to the city that he stripped off his royal robes, the robes that signified his, his office as king, and uh, all he had on was the little short ephod that they wore under their robes, and he began to dance and shout with joy because the ark was coming back to Jerusalem. And Michal looked out of the window and she saw him and she was, she was embarrassed, she was mortified that a king would act like this. He would get this excited about anything, and she rejected him. 
That apparently was the story of David's life. The people in his kingdom never fully understood his yearning for God. He was misunderstood by his own family. He was misunderstood by the people in the court. I think Psalm 69 is a further description of of the scorn that David received because of of his hunger for the ark. He says in verse 7, I endure scorn for your sake and shame covers my face. I am a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons, for zeal for your house consumes me. And the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I endure scorn. People make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate laugh at me, and I am the song of drunkards. Apparently they made up drinking songs about David and his folly, and they laughed at him because he hungered for the ark. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. And that's what David experienced because of his zeal for God. That's why I think he says, the psalmist says in the first verse, Lord, remember David and all the hardships he endured, all the humiliation he endured, because he hungered for God. David was a was very much a flawed man in much of what he did. He was a murderer. He was a liar. He was a thief. He ran a sort of protection racket while he was in the Judean wilderness trying to escape from Saul. He is infamous for his sins. He was an adulterer. And yet God saw his heart. David is described in the Old Testament as a man after the Lord's own heart. Now, isn't that strange? He was a man who was guilty of almost every sin that we can imagine. And yet he was a man after God's own heart. And that desire, that pursuit of God, is shown by his attitude toward the ark. Saul had no use for the ark. David yearned for the ark. His first action was to bring the ark up to Jerusalem. He wanted God to be Lord in the nation and over his life. And God saw that the attitude of his heart. I have a very good friend who, like David, grew up tough. His name is Bo Spaulding. He grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, and most of his life he just he literally had to fight for his life. He was rejected by his parents and uh, spent most of his time on the streets thought he would probably uh, become a professional prize fighter. That was his ambition in life. But Bo said throughout those years, there was uh, inside him a deep hunger for God. He never went to church. He didn't read the Bible. He knew nothing about spiritual things, but there was a great hunger for God. And one day, as he was walking down the streets of East Palo Alto in California, someone put a track in his hand. He describes it later. It was a terrible track. It was it's filled with hellfire and brimstone and very little of the grace of God. But he sat down on the curb and he read the track. And it gave him enough truth that he knew he needed a Lord. And he asked Jesus Christ to be Lord. C.S. Lewis has said, God is in the business of making bad people good and good people better. He just takes us right where we are. And Bo was one of these folks who was a bad person. 
He had done everything there was to do. He had picked up every habit, almost, that, that, you, could, that you could possess. And his life was in ruin. Most of his life from that point on was a struggle to follow God. He would seem to get on his feet and, and he'd begin to make some progress and he'd fall right back into the old sins. And there seemed to be no real and final deliverance to Bo, but he had a heart for God. He hungered after God. And those of us that knew him knew that that was the attitude of his spirit. One of the most vivid impressions, I think, of those years was uh, once while I was lying in, in the hospital, I had some ear surgery done, and as I was coming out of the anesthetic, I, uh, I heard someone at the foot of my bed weeping, and I thought maybe they were mourning for me, like uh, someone I, I felt the report of my death had been vastly uh, exaggerated. But uh, when I focused on, on the foot of the bed, I saw Bo sitting in a chair with his head down on the blankets just at the foot of, of the bed weeping. And as it turned out, Bo had failed again. With all the best intentions, he had failed again. And he would try again, give his heart again to the Lord and struggle on a bit more and then fail again. That was the story of his life. But little by little, the Lord gave Bo victory. He began to win. He began to see the Lord conquer some of these habits that controlled him and deal with the attitudes. And where there was despair and darkness, Bo began to, to see light. And God began to use his life to touch other people. Today, he's over in, in Washington pastoring a church. It's tough for Bo because uh, he didn't have much going for him. But God's in the business of making bad people good and good people better. You see, that's why God loved David. Because he had a heart to follow the Lord. And though his life was checkered and he failed repeatedly, God saw his heart. He was a man after God's own heart. God exalted him. David's vow in verse 3 is, I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes nor slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. Like Paul, there was one thing that he sought above all else, and that was the lordship of Jesus Christ. In verses 6 through 10, these words, the words that evidently David first uttered, are put into the mouth of the people. Apparently, once a year, at an annual festival, perhaps, or on the annual anniversary of the ascent of the ark, the people would gather, and the king would lead the congregation in these words. We heard of it in Ephrathah, just as David heard of the ark in Bethlehem, and from the time he was a young man, his, his quest for the ark controlled his life. We heard it in Ephrathah. We came upon it. We discovered it in the fields of Jaar. Apparently it was so well hidden and so completely forgotten, they had to search for it in, until they found it. Let us go up to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Those are the words that the people would chant as they lifted the ark on the shoulders of the priests, and the priests began their journey 
to the city of Jerusalem because this was the morning prayer that Israel uttered while they were wandering in the wilderness. Every morning when the cloud would lift and it would depart, the priests would lift the ark on their shoulders with this prayer, Arise, O Lord, and scatter your enemies before you. And so they simply repeat here as they carry the ark up to Jerusalem what the nation uh, said when they began their journey through the wilderness. Arise, O Lord, and come to your resting place, you in the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with righteousness. May your saints shout for joy. May your priests be clothed properly, with proper attire. May joy be expressed for the sake of David, your servant. Do not reject your anointed one. There are some who think that they may even have recreated this episode annually. They would make the trek down the mountain to Kiriatira and would carry again the ark up to Jerusalem. Now again, we don't uh, today worship around an ark. We worship around a living Lord. But we need to say again in our own hearts what ancient Israel said annually in commemoration of David's, uh, David's uh, yearning for the ark. Because this is the essence of our relationship to Christ. We, like David, need to search for God with all of our heart and yield our lives up to him. As Paul puts it, we need to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable act of worship. That's what God wants. He doesn't want our religious activity, doesn't want our liturgy, doesn't want our, uh, our, our worship. He wants our heart, not our outward worship. He wants our inward worship. And when he has our heart, then he can begin to do something with us. He can begin to change us. Now, I find for myself the reason most of us don't give the Lord our hearts is because we'd really rather run our lives ourselves. It's very difficult for any man to give up his independence for another man, to subject himself to another person. It's hard for a woman to subject herself to another person. We'd rather be miserable and run our own lives and yield our wills to someone else. And perhaps the hardest act of all is to yield our will to Jesus Christ. But that's the essence of Christian faith. That's where we begin. As David began, by making the Lord Lord in our life. Now when we do that, the Lord responds to us as he did to David. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath that he will not revoke. One of your descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I, I teach them, then your sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling. When we make this sort of vow to God, he responds with this vow. And I, and I want you to notice first that this vow is based upon his word. The Lord himself goes back into Second Samuel and quotes the words that he gave to David and to Nathan at that time. David wanted to build a house for God. God said, no, I want to build a house for you. I want to make an enduring dynasty for you. And I promise you that there will be a son to sit on the throne. If he's disobedient, I'll discipline him. But I promise you that one of your sons will be available to sit on the throne. That's God's word to David, the Lord who cannot, cannot lie. And the Lord fulfilled his word to David. There was always a son ready to sit on the throne. 
At various times, for one reason or another, they were not actually on the throne because Israel was disobedient. But there was always a son available until Jesus came. And now there's no need for another king of Israel. He is the king. So the Lord was faithful to his word. And that's what we need to realize. When we yield up our hearts to the Lord Jesus, he's faithful to his word. That's what we can count on. He's promised to be what we need for every circumstance. And it's based on his promise, not on some vision that we receive or some dream or some experience, but on his word, his promise. And furthermore, what God promises to David is the very thing that David wants above all else. David wants to be a good king. He wants to be just and fair and righteous. He wanted to be able to make good decisions and to be in control of his environment and put down the enemies that surrounded Israel. That was his desire. And what God vows is to give David the desires of his heart. I don't know why it is that we think that if we yield up our hearts to God, he's going to make us miserable. He's going to clamp a pith helmet on your head and send you to Africa. And he's going to make you the most miserable person that ever lived. That's not his intention. I think most of us, perhaps all of us, want to be godlike. We want to be able to control our environment, control our tongues and our tempers. Most of us, when we were growing up as children, uh, said to ourselves, I'll never treat my children the way I was treated. And then we hear ourselves saying exactly the same things that were said to us in the same tone of voice even. And we realize that we just do not have control over ourselves. We want it, but we don't reign in our environment. But you see, that's what God wants for you and for me. He wants us to reign like kings, to put down every enemy, to control, to be in control, to subdue the habits and and uh, patterns of life that destroy us, ruin us, take the joy out of life and make life empty, meaningless. To bring our tempers under control. To keep us from saying things to one another that we never intended to say. You can say things to the, the person you love more than anyone else in a harsh, unloving way and, and afterwards you always regret it. Why did I do that? You see, it's those areas of life that God wants to control. He wants us to reign in life, but he can't do a thing until we yield up the control of our lives to him. He says three things about David in verse 17. He says, I will make a horn grow for David. A horn is a symbol of power. So here David has promised that he will have power over his enemies. Authority in his life, over his moods, his crankiness, his irritability, as we will have power over every enemy in our life. And I'll set up a lamp for my anointed one. A lamp symbolized to the ancients what it symbolizes to us. It's light in the midst of darkness. They were afraid of the dark. And uh, darkness represented despair, gloom, death, defeat. A lamp represents light and hope, assurance, influence upon others. 
And finally, he says, the crown on his head will be resplendent. It will shine. That's a picture, a picture of dignity and majesty. Or translated in the spiritual terms today, a picture of, of poise under pressure. Now, that's what God wants for us. That's what he longs for us. God wants us to realize our manhood and womanhood fully. I think I've mentioned before A.W. Tozer's comment when he was asked why he became a Christian. He said, if you want to know why I became a Christian, it's in order to become a man. It takes God to be a man or a woman. He yearns that to be in us what we long to be. But we need to begin with David's attitude. And make Jesus Christ Lord in our lives. Usually I find that's uh, it comes down to some specific issue in my life. There is uh, an initial act that we take that brings us into God's family when we make Christ Lord, but... That works its way out in very specific ways in our life. God has a way of putting his finger on some issue in our life, something we're unwilling to give up or yield. And he calls for that. And we think if we give it up, then someone will run over us or will not be fulfilled or will not be able to accomplish in life what I've always hoped to accomplish. That's the irony. We want to be God-like, but we want to be God-like by ourselves and without God. Only God can be God-like. When we yield up our hearts to him and we say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Take over this area, the area that I struggled with. He comes in. And he begins to work to produce his very best in our life. Not immediately, perhaps. There still may be struggle, and there may be long-term struggle. But Paul promises that we'll reign in life. Sin will not have dominion over you. As Jesus put it, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Let's pray, shall we? Will you make Christ Lord of your life this morning if you've never taken that action before? Will you ask him to come into your life? Fill you and flood you and make you the person that you long to be? Or maybe you've taken that action in the past, but there's some specific practice or attitude. Perhaps it's... uh, It's an unforgiving spirit or it's some other attitude that you've been nurturing and you're unwilling to give up. Will you let him be Lord of that area? Father, we thank you for coming into our world and into our life to make yourself known to us. We thank you that it's your heart's desire to equip us and fulfill us for life Deliver us from our belief in the lie that you came to make make us more uncomfortable. You take from us the things that that make life joyful and enjoyable. Thank you, Father, that you are Lord and that you have the strength to deal with any area of our lives that now have us under their control. 
Thank you that you're all that we need for life. In Jesus' name, amen.